Shalom, this is Shomer Man. Welcome to the Midnight Torah Study for Parsha Shoftim. This uh, drosh will be in the memory of our beloved Karen. So I would like to dedicate this to her blessed memory. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher bakarbanu mikol hamim, Venatan lanu et torato, Baruch atah Adonai, Notein haTorah, Amen. Adonai, may you bind us to the Lapid Mashiach Yeshua. May you grant us eyes to see. Amen. So this week's Torah portion, Shoftim, we kind of got started with this yesterday and uh, continuing on with the first section of this Torah portion, we see all the different functions of the legal system. So we're just going to keep digging through this for a little bit and um, I'd like to start off with some gematria. So for the gematria of Shoftim, the gematria is 439. It is the gematria for Hadalit, which is the door. So you think about the door, uh, you have like basically your lips can be considered a door, which is brought down actually in Ecclesiastes, which is Kohelet. Be'ivrit, and um, the reference of that is um, for, it's uh, basically like a figurative, like a use of, like used figuratively, um, basically, it's uh, Kohelet 12.4, and then uh, there's also a use of door being the doors of Hashemayim through which the rain comes actually seen in Tehillim 78:23, and um, also when you think about Hadalit you think about like the literally the letter Dalit which that letter actually equals four and interestingly enough in the Keher Tumash if you look at the overview it says Thus we see the authority of all four principal forms of Jewish leadership. You have the judicial and legislative, which is the judge. You have the executive, which is the king. The ritual, which is the priest. And the religious, which is the prophet. And they are all confirmed and formalized in this parsha. So that is one of the insights to the gematria. But there's another insight that I was able to find is Ot Lev, which means a note of heart. And you look at what we're actually going through and um, this Torah portion coinciding with, again, the, the month of Elul is basically a note of our heart as we're heading into Elul, as we've begun Elul, actually is that we are making shuva. We are causing Hashem to be inscribed and written upon our hearts. So, um, I actually have G. Shekel pulled up here, and I want to share a nifty little insight that he decided to drop. All right, so he is 
going through the fact that there is a special copy of the Torah as written in uh, Devarim 17. It says some of the king's responsibilities and powers are spelled out and he is enjoined to compose a special copy of the Torah to remain with him always in order that he may read it all the days of his life and learn to fear God, his God, in order to observe and fulfill all the words of this Torah and these rules. So you can see how even the, the king of Israel is subjugated to the authority of Torah. So if it goes for the king, then I'm pretty sure it goes for the subjects, you know. So thinking about how Mashiach being Melech Israel, the king of Israel, he definitely um, champions the Torah, you know. So he himself being the Torah made flesh is just an incredible thing when you really think about how, you know, he's championing, championing himself, basically, you know. And so you think about having self-esteem or, you know, loving yourself and, you know, one who doesn't have love for herself is not able to have love for others and things like that. And so we see how Mashiach is a lover of Torah because he is the manifestation of that. But continuing here, it says the commandment for the king to write a copy of the Torah demonstrates the work of Mashiach. He himself is the word made flesh. He is the copy of the Torah in human form. Furthermore, he writes a copy of the Torah as he writes the Torah upon our hearts. He writes a copy of the Torah as he writes the Torah upon our hearts. Now, basically, I mentioned that, you know, Ish Pela, this is his Torah portion this week. And a few years ago, he was able to give a drash for his bar mitzvah. And he brought this up about how we're like that second Torah scroll where the treasury of of the king of Israel. And so we're seeing here that not only are we the treasury because the king keeps one scroll in his treasury and he keeps the other one with him on his right arm. And so we're seeing here that we are also the Torah scroll that is close to him that is on his right arm. And it says, again, I, I just love this phrase, so I'm going to keep repeating it. <laughs> he writes a copy of the Torah as he writes the Torah upon our hearts. The Torah of King Mashiach is written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. If that sounds familiar, check out 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. You make it clear that you are a letter from Mashiach placed in our care, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on stone tablets, but on human hearts. So a note of the heart, basically, when you look at Parsha Shoftim, in the gematria, it's literally uh, lev ot and um, ot lev. Sleek out the phrase is actually ot lev, which is a note of the heart. And so you look at basically the first letters of those two words. It's aleph and lamet, which is God, and then the last letters, which are tav and vet, 
if you reverse those and make it vet tav, you would get the word bet, bait, which is house. <coughs> so the house of God, bait el, is a note of the heart. And you think about the fact that we become like a copy of the Torah scroll that is to remain with the king. And it's one of his special mitzvahs. So, um, Shoftim, the Dalit, and the note of the heart. So, the next thing I want to go into is continuing on in the overview here that is talking about Teshuvah. And it is, it says, in the context of the overall theme of Sefer Devarim, Teshuva, in the context of the overall theme of the Sefer Devarim, the overall theme being Teshuva, the call to return to God after a period of estrangement or lapse in commitment, as well as the tools to do so. Parashat Shoftim highlights the necessity to empower and submit to authority to subject our behavior to the review of those with whom we have entrusted the task of helping us live our lives in accordance with God's plan and wishes. The submission to authority is not, in the Torah scheme, a surrender to totalitarian oppression necessitated by the concession of human imperfection. On the contrary, since our essence, our divine soul, intrinsically desires only to do God's will because, okay, this is an, a met uh, insertion or interjection that if our divine soul is intrinsically desiring to do the will of Hashem, this is the essence of what it means to be born again because we know that our heart being circumcised which is causing us, we covered this actually in uh, Parshai Kev, where it was talking about having our heart circumcised and refraining from evil. And it basically, uh, in the Rashi commentary, goes into that a person who has an uncircumcised heart desires to do evil things. And actually, I'm going to go ahead and pull that source up real quick because it was just that legit here we go. So Rashi commentary on Devarim 10.16. And it says that the barrier of your heart, this means the blocking of the heart and its covering. It uses the word Arla, which is used often for foreskin. But here it is used in the most basic sense, which means blockage or barrier. This refers to a man's drive to do evil which blocks his heart from being directed towards God. And the, the source Rashi found that with is called Devek Tov. So, that uh, is that. <laughs> so, having our hearts circumcised. And so, once our hearts are circumcised, we remove that desire for evil. And now we desire only Hashem's will. And this makes me think of Romans 7. So I'm going to pull that up. Stand by. Okay, so it is Romans 7. And it, let's see here. He's going through a whole lot. So let's pick up in 14. 
It says, for we have da'at, we have knowledge that the Torah is spiritual, but I am of basar, sold under the power of chet. Okay, so I am of flesh, sold under the power of sin. But the Torah itself, it is spiritual. It is of the Ruach HaKodesh. Okay, so if you ever wonder, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit, or to be filled with the Spirit, or to walk by the Spirit, Romans 7.14 points out that that is the Torah. So the Ruach HaKodesh and the Torah are one. To be walking by the Spirit is to walk by Torah. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with Torah. Alright, so, well, I mean, the Torah is the Aleph Tav of Hashem. It is literally every letter, uh, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. And so when you really look at that too, the that's where the Ruach HaKodesh is. It is the Spirit, it is the power of God. And then, um, so verse 15 it says, for I do not have da'at of what I do, for I for that which I commit is not what I want. No, that is what I hate to do. And then it says, but if that which I do is what I do not want to do, I agree with the Torah, which the Torah is good. So I'm going to go into this verse here. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. It's an interesting way to really validate the Torah, <laughs> you know, because he's desiring righteousness, you know, desiring to be spiritual. And it's just like, well, I'm not really operating in that. So when I fall short and when I sin, I'm proving that the law is good because sin is bad. Death is a curse, you know. So now it says in verse 17, but now it is no longer I that is doing this, but the power of sin which dwells in me. For I have da'at that there dwells in me, that is in my basar, no good thing. For the wish to do what is right lies ready at hand for me, but to accomplish the good is not. For I fail to do good as I wish. But the evil which I do not wish is what I commit. But if what I do not wish is that which I do, it is no longer I doing it, but the power of sin. And indwelling sin, falling Adam, which dwells within me. I find it then to be, so I find this law at work. I have discovered this principle. And if you look at this word, the word is gazettes. In the Orthodox Jewish Bible, it brings this down. And it's basically saying this is like a principle, like another law, basically. So like the law of gravity, the law of uh, momentum or, or different things that you want to uh, talk about, like how there are different laws inside of creation. Um, so here is another one basically is what he's elucidating he says that for me who wish to do the good that for me the evil lies ready at hand for i rejoice i have simkat torah i have simkat torah in the torah of hashem 
so far as the inner man is concerned. And so when you look at Romans seven twenty two, this is what I was kind of alluding to that says, my inner being, I delight in Hashem's law. And then the Keher Tumash over here is saying basically that, you know, intrinsically, our divine soul, our essence, we want to do Hashem's will in the fullest sense. So in order to do that, we are granted Shoftim. We're granted these agents that empower us to do these. So to finish in this verse, it says that fulfilling our unique divine potential without hindrance, any deviation from that course is antithetical, antithetical to our nature. Submission to an authority who determines if we're acting in consonance with the Torah's directives is thus simply a way of facilitating being true to our innermost selves. So again, if you think about the Ot Lev and you think about Hadalit, you think about the four, you know, it is helping us really be true to our innermost selves because truly we delight in the law of God. We want to be filled with the Spirit. So, uh, it takes some show team to do that. And actually, there is a note on this. There was actually a source that I came across this week or today, actually. Uh, can't remember where I found it at, but it was talking about how basically we need to um, extend out this idea of having uh, judges for ourselves. Show team is saying that uh, we should get ourselves a rabbi, you know, a teacher who will empower us and uh, cause us to be drawn more into the understanding of Torah. So having trouble finding that in my notes at the moment. So, um, yeah, just gonna go ahead and <laughs> keep moving right along. Rukashim. So, well, I think this is it right here, actually. <laughs> okay, so this is continuing in the overview. So this name of the parasha being Shoftim, you notice that the second word is, um, so the Torah starts off with judges and sheriffs, which is Shotrim. And it says, so the parasha discusses the necessities of the present its name focuses our sights on the ideal state of the messianic future when sheriffs will not be necessary. So looking at just the name of the Torah portion being Shoftim, this is the ideal uh, state of the messianic future. Right now, we we are not just um, in need of Shoftim, but we're also in need of Shotrim because we're still working it out you know we're still in the process of you know sanctification we're we're being purified and so um actually going back up here the previous paragraph it says the messianic future when god will remove the spirits of impurity from the earth the police force will become superfluous litigants will willingly fulfill the judge's decisions the prophet Yeshayahu therefore informs us that in those days, God will restore your judges as in former times and your counselors as of yore. 
but makes no mentions of the sheriffs. So, you know, you think about that uh, Braca and our Shimone Esrei, how we talk about restoring our judges, that's where it comes from. Then, moving down here, it says, among the many laws and customs to constitute our current practice of Judaism, there are those that will change or even be superseded after the redemption. Until then, no matter how close we approach the time of redemption, they remain in effect in their present form. Conversely, there are numerous mitzvot and practices whose fulfillment has been suspended during the exile. These cannot be fulfilled until after the redemption. One of the best examples of that is sacrifices. You know, right now, the only way to bring a sacrifice or make a sacrifice is to offer up sacrifices of praise with our lips or reading the sacrifices in the Siddur. Then it says, nevertheless, one way of hastening the advent of the redemption is by living with messianic consciousness. That is by living already as far as permissible and possible. Okay. Don't get crazy is basically what that says. The way we live after the Mashiach comes. So we need to live already the way we will live after the Mashiach comes. As far as permissible and possible. I'm just going to go ahead and, and interject here that um, Mashiach already came. And he told us to go out and teach the nations what he taught us. And, um, you know, and we're walking in the power of his resurrection. So technically, we're kind of uh, exhorted by Mashiach to do this. So that's kind of neat that that's already in the Keher Tumash. And then it says it follows that readily heeding the instructions and advice of our Shoftim, the religious authorities who apply the Torah's teachings to the specificities, big word, of each generation without the need for sheriffs to enforce their instructions is itself a way of ushering in the Messianic era. So if you are taking it upon yourself to uh, bring in some judges, you know, shoftim, religious authorities who apply the Torah's teachings to the specificities of each generation, we are basically hastening the messianic era. So, Hashem. I think I remember where I saw that source. I believe it was Lakute Torah. So let me see, because it was talking about the fact that, you know, the uh, authority of the Torah is basically what we give it in our lives these days. So stand by. Let me see if I can find this again. Okay, I should have known. So <laughs> uh, G Shekel is going off on some Seafree here uh, about the shof team it says uh if there are police there are judges if there are no police there are no judges it's the sea free and it says if there are no police to enforce the law the judges may judge all they like but to no effect in addition to study the effective rule of torah law is also 
predicated upon the police who are subject to the authority of the Torah judges. Some may smile at the above suggestion that the first resort for justice should be the local Beit Dean of Torah scholars, wondering how many of today's yeshiva alumni would be capable of acting as judges, let alone having police under them. That'd be kind of awkward and weird. Uh, Definitely goes (laughs) contrary to our thoughts. Uh, of society today, but you know, Bruchem. It should be remembered that one of the reasons why the study of Talmudic law often appears detached from life in the rough and tumble of the actual world is because during most of the past 2,000 years, rabbinical courts everywhere have been stripped of all meaningful sanctions with which to impose and enforce Torah law. The result is that the Torah has authority only over those who give it authority in their lives. Boy, ain't that a true statement. (laughs) Indeed, contemporary political correctness is appalled at the idea of rabbis, quote unquote, interfering in areas that are considered in the realm of personal conscience, such as whether a person worships before a statue or an image or violates the Shabbat or what he or she does with another consenting adult. Under Torah, law of all these may be or may involve capital punishment, as we find the case of idolatry in our parasha, Devarim 17.5. So this idea that the Torah only has authority over those who give it the authority. I'm going to go ahead and just say that this pretty much insinuates that... um, If the Torah has authority over your life, it's because you've entered into a relationship with Hashem and you've said that, God, you shall be my God because you accept his kingship. You accept his ruling, his authority, his standards upon your life. One would technically say you don't have to because it's not this um, totalitarian dictatorship, but we definitely know that the latter opinion there that you don't have to accept the authority of the Torah would fall under what's called curses because, you know, Hashem says, see, I set before you today or death, the blessing or the curse. Which one do you choose? I would desire that you choose life, you know, and so it's just kind of like if we're choosing to walk in life, we're choosing to enter into Connection and relationship with Hashem. Just thinking of the idea, though, that the local Beit Dean, basically the Shotrim, at least in uh, previous times, is that it started with the Torah scholars. You know, those who are definitely engaged and involved with the intricacies of the law. So, you know, if you have any kind of grievances or disputes or anything like that, you would go to those who are actively at work with the prescriptions that Hashem has given us. Makes me think of in the, I think it is the Kehotumash, the overview again. We're just spending time in the overview tonight. It was talking about there's this ideal society that the Torah lays out for us here. Oh, yeah. Okay. So. Get my page pulled up here. Okay, so it says here, 
The maintenance of such a society is essential as the basis of revealing God's presence on the earth, making the world fit to be God's home. As we recall, society's degeneration into a lawless jungle and humanity's banishment of God from life brought about the flood. And so you can see here that uh, what Hashem has really granted us through this is bringing us into the ideal uh, for protection and creating a nation that would um, basically just cause us to grow towards Hashem and make the world fit to be God's home, which would be uh, hastening the coming of Mashiach. So there is that. All right. So I um, want to go ahead and get into this little nugget that I found in the Parsha in depth this week. So this is apparently something that was told by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And I'm kind of feeling like I know where he got this from, but I'll just leave it there and just read. Okay, so it's kind of a long story, but as I'm reading this, just think about Mashiach Yeshua. All right. So Rabbi Yehezekel, Yehezekel Landu, known as the Noda Be Yehuda, after his work by that name, served as the rabbi of Prague from 1754 to 1793. Once a group of scholars who wished to contest his rabbinic qualifications presented him with a series of questions in Torah law. These fictitious cases were artfully constructed to be as complex and as misleading as possible so as to, here we go, ensnare the rabbi in their logical traps and embarrass him with, a, with an incorrect ruling. Need I go on, but uh, I will because what this gentleman says is even more powerful. So it says, the Nodabe Yehuda succeeded in resolving all questions correctly, all that is but one. Immediately, his detractors pounced on him, demonstrating how his verdict contradicted a certain principle of Torah law. Said the Noda Be Yehuda, I'm certain that this case is not actually relevant and that you have invented it in order to embarrass me. So they go on in and they go all down and all this crazy stuff. But then it says, you know what? No, I'm going to go ahead and read it because this is where it gets escalated. It says when questioned how he could know this with such certainty, he explained, you see, Whenever a being of flesh and blood is called upon to decide a matter of Torah law, we are confronted with a basic dilemma. How can the human mind possibly determine what is God's will? Okay, so I don't know if you read between the lines of that statement, but they're placing Rabbi Yechezkel Landu, the Noda Be Yehuda, they're placing him on trial and giving him fictitious cases, artfully constructed, complex, misleading, 
questions in Torah law. And he says, you see, whenever a being of flesh and blood is called upon to decide a matter of Sika, called upon to decide a matter of Torah law, we are confronted with a basic dilemma. How can the human mind possibly determine what is God's will? Basically, in saying that if you're going to do this to a human being of flesh and blood, how in the world is it possible to determine what is Hashem's will? He keeps going. He says the do's and the don'ts of Torah are the guidelines by which the Almighty desires that we order our lives. How is it that the finite and error prone intellect is authorized to decide such divine absolutes? All right. So now I'm going to keep going. I just I'm really excited to get to the Yeshua connection here, but <clears throat> just calm down. Breathe. Okay. But the Torah itself instructs that the Torah is not in heaven but has been given to man to study and comprehend and that whenever a question or issue is raised, it is a human being employing his finite knowledge and judgment who must render a ruling. In other words, when a person puts aside all considerations of self, totally surrenders his mind to serve the Torah God guarantees that the result will be utterly consistent with his will. Okay, so that's legit. I'm glad I didn't skip that. However, concluded Noda Be Yehuda, this guarantee applies only to actual events. When a rabbi is called upon to determine what it is that God desires to be done under a given set of circumstances. But not if his personal honor is the only issue at hand. Man, this is making the case of Yeshua even more. Oh my gosh. Okay. Had you presented me with a relevant question, I know that I would not have erred since I approached the matter with no interest or motive other than to serve the will of God. But since your case was merely a hypothetical question designed to mislead me my mind was just like every other mind great and small alike imperfect and manipulable manipulable basically it was able to be manipulated it's a really hard word to say <laughs> wonder what that word is in hebrew but anyway so now for my long-awaited connection here i want to start out with yokanon because using this as kind of a foundation for elucidating the brilliance here with what this truly means with mashiach okay so yokanon 86 now they were saying this testing him so that they may have grounds to accuse him but Yeshua, having stooped down, began writing with his finger on the ground. So Yeshua was like, I'm not playing this game. And furthermore, you're putting yourself in uh, some serious 
trouble as well because there's this nifty little verse in Yermiyahu. It is Yermiyahu 17, 13. First of all, this is the verse that says that Hashem, literally the name, the Yod and Hay with the Vav and Hay, is the mikvah of Yisrael. So if we enter into the name of Hashem, we're cleansed and purified of all of our sin. So that's why if you're calling up on the name of Hashem, the name of the Lord, then you will be saved. That's where that little kind of caveat comes from. But anyway, it says, Adonai, you are the hope of Yisrael. You are the mikvah of Yisrael. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Think about Yochanan 8.6. It says, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken Adonai, the spring of living water. So this verse begins and ends calling Hashem a mikvah. And remember that the rock that traveled with the children of Israel in the wilderness also uh, is a spring and a mikvah. Let me go to, I got a little, uh, man, better find this. Let's see here. Stand by, stand by. Got to share this with you. All right, Brugashem. Thought I was not going to be able to find this source. <laughs> this actually comes from uh, Laser Brody. And he was talking about uh, Moshe's rock, which is called Miriam's Well. This is the rock that I'm talking about that travels with the children of Israel in the wilderness. And um, he is going into some uh, insights here. And where is it? Okay, so just so you know that it says um, that for 40 years in the desert, the rock accompanied the people of Israel, that is from Nachmanides, and then um, the Yerushalayim uh, Ketubot 67a, and tells us the Jewish people, when the Jewish people came into the Holy Land, Hashem deposited and concealed Miriam's well in the Sea of Galilee. So there's that, and then... Um, Talked about how the rock, inasmuch as it was Miriam's well, was ready to flow forth with sufficient water to quench the thirst of an entire nation. He would only need to speak to it. Moshe would only need to speak to this rock, and that would happen. So that's ridiculous. Speak to the rock, and it will grant water for a whole nation. <laughs> Man. So, ah, here it is. It says um, that, okay, so this earth, or this this rock uh, triggered earthquakes that um, basically destroyed the Amorites um, back in Bami Bar chapter 21. And the rock which was also Marion's well can be seen as a source of life or a source of destruction it can be a source of abundance of healing waters or the epicenter of destructive earthquakes uh, man there's this whole thing about basically like one drop of the well uh, 
the water that comes from this well would heal like sicknesses and diseases. And so obviously the implications of Mashiach healing and um, bringing wholeness to the bodies of those who were, um, you know, lame or blind or deaf or mute and all that. Uh, we see here that the rock also did all that. So, um, yeah, just wanted to say that in the context of uh, Yermiyahu that we're reading here. So let me go back to that. So Yermiyahu 17, 13. So the spring of living water, the mikvah of Yisrael, and then in the middle of that, we see that if we forsake this, that this causes shame and that those who turn away from Hashem are written in the dust. And so when you look at what's going on in Yochanan 8, you see that the people who are causing this uh, fictitious situation, because remember, this woman was caught in adultery, apparently caught in the act, which is um, very disturbing when you think about the fact of this group of guys, which none of them are her husband, so there's that, and then you have the fact that they were setting this trap for her, and, um, you know, they bring her specifically to Yeshua, so he's in the temple courtyard, so I imagine that it took a little bit of planning to figure this out, because, you know, there are not just residential neighborhoods, like, right outside the temple courtyard, you know, so they had a journey to get there and then you know just the um the heart uh thoughts that would happen the notes of the heart that would happen for these guys imagine that we're we're going to take you to the king of kings and if this guy is really the mashiach he's going to stone you he's going to judge you not only will we take care of him but we're going to take care of you you know this is the amet midrash right now and so I mean, this really just sets up a very, very uh, sad and unfortunate situation. But just thinking about here how this Rebbe, Noda Be Yehuda, was saying, you know, um, since you're doing this, you're putting me in this uh, circumstance that is uh, basically causing me to have personal honor be at be the issue at hand you know like my personal honor is being attacked right now this is you know something that is very um what is the word he uses you presented me with a uh let's see your case was merely a hypothetical question designed okay I mean, designed, first of all, count the red flags, hypothetical, question, designed, mislead, you know, like it's all like set up. And here Mashiach is, you know, minding his own business, literally Hashem's business, which is teaching Torah to the kingdom. And these gentlemen come in here and interrupt and they're saying, you know, uh, what do you say to her? You know, what do you say to this? What's your judgment on this? Now, if you look at the fact that if this 
situation is hypothetical. It's designed to mislead. It's an entrapment. It's an attack on his personal honor. They're trying to find a way to accuse him. According to Nota Be, um, Nota Be Yehuda, he says, whenever a being of flesh and blood is called upon to decide a matter of Torah law, basic dilemma, how can the human mind possibly determine what is God's will? Well, how about you have the manifestation of God's will, determining God's will. He is in the likeness of flesh and blood, and he's going to decide a matter of Torah law. And it's not the law that these gentlemen are thinking of. So why don't we go ahead and read the next verse? They kept on questioning him because <laughs> he's writing in the dirt. So it's just like, I'm not going to do this right now. Ain't nobody got time for that. And then they're like keeping going. So he straightens up and he says to them, how about this Torah law? Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And oh my goodness, would you even believe it that in the <laughs> in the insights for this week, it says that um, judges and officers you shall place at your gates, Devarim 16:18. It says, "Do not judge alone." For no one can judge alone but the one. Ethics of our fathers, 4.8. And uh, here you have Mashiach, who is the manifestation of the one. He's saying, here's my judgment. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. So he gave them an opportunity to make Teshuvah. Because if you go back to the Yermiyahu verse, Hashem is the hope of Israel. So it's like, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Even though you're here and this is an awkward circumstance, an awkward situation, I'm going to give you an opportunity. So I'm going to stoop down and I'm going to write in the dust of the earth. So you want me to write your first and last name? You want me to write, you know, that you're the son of so-and-so? Do you want me to keep writing? Because if I keep writing, then, you know, that's it. He's doing this. He's giving them an opportunity to repent. And they're continuing to question him. And so he stands up. He gives the toward judgment because he is the only one who can judge. Even though he's not here to judge, he's actually here to save. Hence why he's prolonging this uh, awkward situation. So after he gives the judgment call, he turns back around, starts writing again. Like if I finish this, you're you're really setting, you know, what you've chosen, basically. Like you've chosen to be those who forsake Hashem, basically. It says at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Yeshua was left with the woman standing. So Bezrat Hashem, due to their actions, due to Mashiach ceasing to stop writing, which we see in verse 10, it says Yeshua straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? 
has no one condemned you? And then she says, no one, sir. They then neither do I condemn you, declared Yeshua. Go now and leave your life of sin. Okay, so here's the thing. Encountering Mashiach Yeshua completely in the wrong, completely set up, which, by the way, if we go back to the Romans 7 that we were reading, because of our sinful flesh and the power of sin that is within it, we are basically like this woman. You know, we're entrapped, we're set up, and here we are before Mashiach. You know, that's why the end of Romans 7 says, Who can set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to Hashem for Mashiach Yeshua, basically. So we encounter Mashiach Yeshua. We're completely in the wrong. We're not desiring to be here. You know, like, I'm pretty sure this woman would rather not have had this happen to her. <laughs> so it says, Mashiach says, I do not condemn you because there's no condemnation for those who are in Mashiach, which is Romans 8. And then it says, go now and leave your life of sin. So here's the deal. If there is no condemnation and you're choosing to come before the king, the king is in the field like the month of Elul. You are not allowed to dwell in a life of sin, which is why the teshuva that we're making right now is so important, which is why being transformed and our essence being renewed, you know, like we're changing our essence, not just to who we used to be, but, you know, into the new man, basically new mind, new heart, you know, putting off the old, putting on the new, all of that. We got to we have to leave our life of sin. You know, we can't afford to continue to disrespect the judges, you know, and all of that. So I just thought that was uh, really, really interesting that the Rebbe uh, brings down this elucidation with Noda Be Yehuda. So now, just because this was so fun, <laughs> a couple of more instances to prove that Mashiach Yeshua is not just one who is of flesh and blood and of a human finite mind. Because remember, Mashiach Yeshua is the infinite brought into the finite, which is all summed up in the word Memra. Ankylos always drops that in whenever it talks about the name of Hashem doing something, the word of Hashem doing something, or the spirit of Hashem. And anything that anthropomorphizes the Torah, he always reverts and goes to Memra. That's the Targum Ankylos. He always does that. He doesn't want to make it seem like there's any corporeality to Hashem. But the thing is, is even if Hashem becomes corporeal like he did in Mashiach Yeshua, he was still beyond the basic tenets of corporeality. You know, what do you call the fact that Mashiach Yeshua transfigures he overcomes all sin, even though he's tempted in every way. Um, supernatural fasting like Moshe, because remember, Moshe fasted for 40 days, he did that three times. And um, Mashiach, Yeshua, I mean, from the from after the Pesach Seder and on, he's fasting and then he's being improperly judged and beaten and, um, you know, ultimately dies on the stake. And it's just kind of like no mere man could endure and put up with all that. Just going to 
throw that out there. I mean, you got to be really awesome, first of all, to be physically up to that task, but spiritually, because Mashiach was completely innocent and he was doing this for the sake of all mankind. And, you know, it's one thing for a person to die for another person, you know, in their place if they were of quote unquote good people, like good character. Like, I really like this guy and I wish that he would have to die. So, you know, he does a lot of good things for the community. He's an upright standing person, you know, like he's in danger. Let me go save him. The fact that while we were moving into rapid degeneration, Mashiach was like, nope, I'm going to see that. I'm going to stand in front of that train. I'm going to let that train run over me. And that's cool because I've been killed before. Because Moshe shattered me when I came down the mountain the first time. And this time, after I'm shattered, I'm just going to be raised back up. And these will not be stone tablets. These will be the renewal of the sapphire tablets brought together by the spirit of Hashem, by the word of Hashem. And so the tablets, in a sense, are um, reconstructed by themselves, just like the Mishkan, when it was put up and taken down by Moshe, it says that Moshe set up and tore down the Mishkan in the wilderness. But the commentary says, really, the Mishkan erected itself. It set itself up. And so you just kind of tie all those things together and, and there you go. So anyway, um, I just think it's absolutely incredible to know that the extreme obedience to Mash of Mashiach to uh, coming down from the throne of God and saving us and uh, really instilling within us his words, his teachings, his example and empowering us through the Ruach HaKodesh to uphold the Torah, just like a true Shoftim, you know, like true judges. So keeping us uh, true to our innermost being, causing our inner man that delights in Torah to have the opportunity in the outer man to, to make that match up, you know, so that we get out of Romans 7 and go into Romans 8. So I, I talk a lot about Romans 8. Why don't we read Romans 8? I've done this before, but I want to do it again because you can never read this enough. This is like Talmudic insights at its finest. It says, therefore, there is no longer any condemnation awaiting those who are in union with Mashiach. Again, if you're in union with Mashiach, that means you're not in cahoots things that are anti-Mashiach, i.e. if you're a Torah breaker, if you're a lawless person, if you're a non-Jewish person, you know, like you're one of those people who are in union with Mashiach. Side note, because I said non-Jewish, that probably was nails on a chalkboard. Whoa, what just happened? That escalated quickly. If you're in union with Mashiach, you are a Jew. You are Jewish, and that's something that has not been taught, something that has been forgotten, because what do you think that was happening to all these people with the Talmudim going out like Levitical Shliakim, going out into all these nations in these uh, different countries, 
advancing the Torah to all men, the good news of redemption that was in flesh, you know. And so the Torah, when it became flesh, is what the good news is that, you know, the word of God came and dwelt among us to uh, renew the essence of who we are to end the decree of death that was begun by Adam. And now through the second Adam, we're going to all be brought to life. And so like this opportunity that's happening when when this message penetrates the hearts of the hearers and they begin to walk in Torah, there's this thing called conversion that happened. You know, they entered into the water, they entered into the mikvah, their hearts were circumcised, you know, and all of that, that made them Jewish. Just pointing that out. So anyone who calls upon the name of Hashem, anyone who's been circumcised in the heart and in the flesh, or either or, because um, if you're circumcised in the heart, it ultimately leads, if you're a guy, to be circumcised in the flesh. That's just a part of it. It may not happen immediately, or it may happen immediately. Either way, it eventually happens, unless there are extreme health risks and case precedents that Halakha points out that would cause a person not to need to get circumcised. But talk to your local rabbi or talk to your rabbi who you've chosen to place yourself under. You know, for us, that would be Rabbi Griffin, the Rebbe of Lapid. You know, Rav Lapid is what his other title is. But anyway, I say all that to say that these massive droves of people you see throughout Acts that are coming out of idolatry and paganism, removing themselves from the title of Gentile, they become Jewish. So... Once you do that, you're considered to be in union with the Mashiach. Just pointing that out. Okay, so anyway, it says, why? Because the Torah of the Spirit, which produces this life in union with Mashiach, has set me free from the Torah of sin and death. Because remember, Hashem says, I set before you life and death. There are two paths you can take with the Torah. There's the one where you can do it your own way and not be obedient and if you want to be obedient but for the sake of your own personal aggrandizement for your own personal elevation and esteem and wanting to seem cool or hip uh, then that's the Torah of death but if you're obedient to the Torah subjugated to the word of Hashem your heart is sensitive before him that's called the Torah of the Spirit, the Torah that produces life. So that's what he's talking about here. And it says, For what the Torah could not do by itself, because it lacked the power to make the old nature cooperate, God did by sending his own son as a human being with a nature like our own sinful one, but without sin. God did this in order to deal with sin, and so doing, he executed the punishment against in human nature. And so basically you have this idea that Hashem uses that which wounds. He also uses that same instrument to bring healing. In man, you know, there's the, the sin nature, and so brings forth his man, Elohim, 
the sin nature in him, he condemns to death on the crucifixion stake, which is called a curse. Anyone who's hanged on a tree is called cursed. So he curses the cursed. He cancels it out, basically, you know, because two wrongs don't make a right. Right. But if you take the curse of being disobedient to Torah through obedience, place that upon a device of cursing, which would be the tree, then therefore you have the equation of canceling out the curse of the sinful human nature. And so Hashem is definitely working that same pattern there. But uh, just wanted to point out that, you know, it, it definitely makes this phrase here that says what the Torah could not do by itself. Remember, Mashiach Yeshua says that I can do nothing apart from my father. Um, just so you believe me, I'm going to get that source for you real quick. I can do nothing of myself. That is Yochanan 5.30. So put that with Romans 8.3 for what the Torah could not do by itself because it lacked the power. It says God did by sending his own son. So there you go. So Hashem works together through Mashiach to accomplish what Mashiach said cannot be accomplished if it's done on its own. So uh, the whole thing about in Mashiach alone, my hope is found, you know, and through him alone, we are saved. Uh, it's kind of isolating out there. And uh, that's a tangent you don't want to get yourself on. But uh, through Mashiach, walking in Torah, filled with the spirit of Hashem, subjugated to Hashem, circumcised heart, through the mikvah, through the conversion, through being in union with Mashiach, walking in his ways. You know, you got this whole picture here. You're like wrapped up like a Torah scroll. It's more than just one thing. I guess if you want to take it to just saying one thing, it's really Hashem because we just read Hashem Eloheinu Hashem Echad. Hashem is one. His oneness is a body of many members. Um, the Kehert Humash broke that down in the Hasidic insights about the word Echad. So there's all that. But anyway, um, back to these uh, hypothetical accusations. Matityahu um, 16.1 Then the Perushim and the Sadducees came and tested Yeshua by asking him to show them a sign from Hashemayim. Okay, they're testing him again. You know, uh, let's go ahead and dive into that one. I always love to see what Yeshua responds like. I love his responses. It says, he replied, when the evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. So, yeah, you want a sign and uh, you can look at these other things, but yet you can't discern this. Like, what are you trying to do here? Then it says, Matityahu 19.3, some perishim. Notice it says some, not all, because it's important to know that as you see all of these occurrences of the perishim and the Sadducees testing Mashiach, it's not all perushim because Mashiach himself is a perush, a, a Pharisee. And so... Um, it's important to know, just don't lump all the Pharisees into anti-Yeshuanism, okay? Like that's a thing for some reason. But it says, some of the Perushim came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? 
I believe this was a dispute brought down by Hillel and Shammai. One was like, you can't divorce your wife unless it's for infidelity. Or the other said, you can't divorce your wife or you can divorce your wife if she burns the toast. And it's just kind of like, wow, that's really a Talmudic thing that's brought down. But anyway, um, let's look at what Yeshua says. Haven't you read? Okay, so this flies in the face of a um, article that just got released this weekend that uh, is about a um, pastor of a mega church who has basically attacked the Tanakh and said that it is of no value for the church and um, that as followers of God, that we don't need that basically, and um, this whole unhitch thing that's going around. But anyway, in the midst of this article, it's bringing down that um, apparently during the first century, there were not a lot of literate um, scholars, i.e. that most people didn't know how to read or write during this time. Well, that may be true for most people, but I'll go ahead and let you know that for the Yehudim, for the Jews, that's not the case because Mashiach in Matthew 19, 4 would not say, haven't you read? Haven't you read the scriptures? What do the scriptures say? How do you interpret them? You know, like all these different things, you know, it is written, you know, all these different things that, you know, are quoted not only by Mashiach himself, but also by his Talmudim which insinuates, implies, and infers that literacy uh, is kind of a thing when it comes to Judaism. So there is that. So um, obviously don't need to be taking this article and taking it out back and beating it like a dead rug or a dirty rug. But, you know, just something just something to know, you know, because the article is just kind of going back and forth into all these crazy loops of insanity and then they drop in there that most people during the time of Mashiach were illiterate and it's just kind of like okay but in the synagogues they're reading from the Torah scroll so I'm just just saying like I don't know if that ever was a factor uh in the uh statement that was formalized and placed in this article but now it is so here we go uh so yeah so he goes haven't you read the scriptures haven't you read the tanakh it says they record or it records the tanakh records that from the beginning god made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his wife or leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And that's all he's going to say about that. So even with I mean, it's just amazing to me that, you know, you think about all these um fictitious cases trying to catch him up and entrap him even though they're attacking his honor and his personhood seeking to embarrass him seeking to kill him he's just like i am not your average you know human being you know i am 
I'm beyond all this. I'm in human form for the sake of interacting with you, but you're testing me as if I'm a mere mortal. So is Mashiach divine? I would say the answer is yes. <laughs> Matthew 22:35. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with a question. Let's see what that question was. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law, in the Torah? Yeshua replied, the greatest commandment. Uh, I think you know this one. It's called the Shema, which is found in Devarim chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your resources. Okay? This says, this is the first and greatest commandment. So he's just going to go ahead and turn it up a little bit. The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And all the Torah and the prophets hang on these two mitzvot. Now, just because this was a new revelation for me a week ago, that this verse saying that you take the two greatest commandments and you make little hooks for your garment. So you hang your garment of commandments on those two things. So if you have a whole garment of commandments at the top of that garment that's anchored to the hook to hang up this garment, you have love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then you have love your neighbors, you love yourself. From there, the rest of the garment flows. And so if you think about the rest of the mitzvot, they hang from those. So if you're going to be a person who eats kosher, celebrates the Yom Tov, wraps to feeling, dons zizit, dress zanut, so on and so forth, observing the Shabbat. Like, uh, if you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, or love your neighbors, you love yourself, which are one and the same, because Hashem is our neighbor. So if we're able to love the, our brother or sister who we see, then we can also at the same time love him who we do not see because we're all made in his image and we're all his beloved children. There's that. And then let's pick one more. This has been really fun. All right. Luke 10:25. This is a good one. This one caused like two, two and a half droshes, <laughs> you know, one half from me and two from rabbi. So <laughs> there's that. But then it says, um, on one occasion, an expert, mm, an expert in the Torah stood up, mm, stood up. He coming bold with it. It says he stood up to test Yeshua. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, that's a crazy question when you think about it, because, you know, the Torah, you know, is life. And if we're obedient to the Torah and we toil in Torah, the Torah, the Torah toils for us and takes us into Alam Haba, which is called eternal life. But anyway, um, if you're an expert in the Torah law, you already know the answer to that question. So why are you asking it? But anyway, Yeshua didn't really go there he didn't even acknowledge that which i think is again more of a upstanding um beautiful uh i don't know it's just beautiful that he would even do that 
just kind of like when he turned and started writing in the dust of the earth and the people are like, what do you say about this? We got to question you. This woman was caught in adultery. And he's all like, that's not the right questions, guys. I'll let you try again. And then uh, so here anyway, he says, what is written in the Torah? He replied, how do you read it? So what does the expert say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbors. You love yourself. So hold up, hold up, hold up. Homeboy, homeboy here just said the Shema. And then he added with all your mind. OK, so just to let everybody know, when you look at this verse, it basically says with all your strength and with all your mind, if you go interlinear on this verse. It uses the same word twice. Uh, it uses um, with all your, say, so love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So, cardias, psyche, isqui, and dionia. Uh, but the heart and the mind are actually connected. And be'ivrit, the heart and the mind are called lev. So it literally uses lev, lev with your two hearts, which are your two inclinations. So this expert in Torah here is basically saying to obtain eternal life, you have to love Hashem with your two inclinations and love your neighbors. You love yourself, which remember the rest of the Torah hangs on those things, i.e. So if you're in Torah, if you're being observant, that's leading you into eternal life because you will take a mitzvah with you and to the Alam Haba, and that mitzvah will walk before you and grant you merit to enter into the kingdom. And you only know that if you're studying Jewish literature, if you're studying Talmud, Midrash Rabbah. So, um, so there's that. What does Yeshua say to his answer? Well, he says, you've answered correctly. Yeshua replied, do this and you will live. You would think, okay, I tried to mess him up and I didn't. And I ended up, you know, answering him appropriately. So I didn't get myself in trouble and he didn't get himself in trouble. Okay. I guess he's legit because I'm kind of an expert and he just, he just outdid me here. But no, verse 29 comes in, but he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Yeshua and who is my neighbor? Again, remember, Hashem is your neighbor, right? But anyway, Yeshua says, um, in reply, he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. They went away, leaving him half dead. Here's an opportunity for a met mitzvah, um, making sure you attend to a abandoned body. Uh, which is also in this week's Torah portion, that um, the Shof team from the two neighboring cities where this abandoned uh, body is found in the field, they are to do all of this uh, measuring out to see which city it's closest to. Then they shall bring this uh, sacrifice, which is a calf that is axed, you know, like they break the neck of the calf and decapitate it, basically. And... Um, that act of cruelty shows how cruel it was for this person who was left unattended 
just out in the open field, no one to care for him. And why was he uh, given to these circumstances anyway? Because he should have had people escort him out. You know, you don't let a traveler just leave unattended. So there's all that. But anyway, Yeshua is bringing this down as well. He's saying a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side because he didn't want to be defiled, basically, because you are defiled by a human corpse. And so it's like, don't know if this guy is really dead, but I am a priest. I'm a Cohen and I don't want to be defiled. Now, the thing is, you read, um, I believe it's Parshat and more. And it says, even if the priest is getting ready for Yom Kippur service and to do all those duties, he is still to uh, defile himself for the sake of taking care of a corpse that is unattended. So there's that. So then you see the next verse says, so to a levy, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Okay, so, so this is a prominent person who should be leading an example because remember, as we learned yesterday, the Leviim were actually uh, the Torah teachers for the nation, and they would travel from city to city, you know, to teach Torah. So, like, instead of missionaries, it, again, it's the Leviim who are teaching Torah, and they're going throughout the nation to do so. <clears throat> so, anyway, this Levi passes by, and um, again, all these people who are passing by right now, they know this mitzvah of attending to a corpse and they're not acknowledging it. So that's not good. And the next verse says, but a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine pouring on oil and wine when he put the man on his or then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him just want to say that's absolutely legit you know this person who is despised but who gets torah you know i'm thinking about everybody in lapid right now you know like we are so despised and scorned because of mashiach and that's cool because mashiach said you know, the world will hate you because of me and you'll be kicked out of synagogues because of me. You know, like it's cool, but really getting Torah, you know, like really having a heart of compassion for people, you know, like I am very proud and honored and privileged to be a part of a community of such. I'd rather be despised and completely getting the Torah as opposed to being accepted and embraced and not really getting the Torah, even though I have it, you know, because I think about the fact that there are other synagogues around us that, you know, they have all of the wonderful classrooms and all of the wonderful furnishings. They have, you know, Arabs, they have, you know, the works when it comes to a shul. But at the same time, so closed, you know, because people who want to learn Torah, who are not even aware of which way is up, you know, they're not granted an opportunity to enter in, you know. And furthermore, 
through Mashiach Yeshua. It's just kind of like if you have and know Yeshua HaMashiach, the next step for you now is to engage in Torah. Because now you have the, per the perfect prerequisite, which would be the broken tablets, which again, they're overlaid by the second set of tablets in the Ark, which were placed in the first temple. So the complete testimony is to put that all together. You have to have the Torah with Mashiach, you know, in the Ark, which is our hearts. But anyway, I just love the fact that it points out that this is a despised Samaritan. And look at the lengths that he goes for this person. He has so much hope that this person is not just an abandoned corpse, but somehow, somehow may they be alive and may I be able to help them. And oh, look, they are. I'm going to help them. And I'm going to lavish love and resources upon this person because I love my neighbor as I love myself. And I don't want myself to be just kind of left out like that. So then it says, you know, the next day he took out two denarii. Um, and it says, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return... I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So then it says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Yeshua told him, go and do likewise. All right. So there is that. Baruch Hashem. So, uh, as usual, most times anyway, we have surpassed our staying awake for one hour. And Baruch Hashem, because it's been so fun to just kind of look through all this. But if I can just kind of reiterate that, you know, may we merit to hasten the return of Mashiach by living in that consciousness. As the overview of this week's Torah portion points out, that we'll have a messianic consciousness, you know, and we'll live the way that we live now, that we will live after Mashiach's arrival. So we want to be doing that now. We don't want to wait, which is walking in the power of the resurrection, which is what the Brit Hadashah elucidates, you know, and so everything that we've gone through and talked about, you know, this evening, I just pray that. It would truly penetrate and transform our hearts, you know, as we're already in the throw of the 40 days of Shuva. Transformation is happening now. So may it be so, Adonai, that you grant us heat kashut. May you comfort our hearts and the loss of our sister. And may your name be exalted and glorified. And may we be reunited as a Mishpachah soon in our days. And Eretz Israel with the King of Kings sitting on the throne and the Beit HaMikdash. Amen, amen. What do we know? What do we know? Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher natan lanu Torah emet, Vekaye olam natabatokenu, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten ha-Torah. Amen. Amen. May we merit to see the return of Mashiach Yeshua speedily and soon in our days.